If you have a Bible with you, or you're sitting near someone that has a Bible, or you have a Bible app on your smartphone, I want you to pull that out if you can. Turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. As you're turning there, the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. Luke was a doctor, and he was an eyewitness of the first 30 years of the church movement in the first century. So he lived it, he breathed it, he saw it take place right in front of him, and he documented what he saw and what he heard. And so what we're reading is an eyewitness account of the events of the first century church. And in Acts chapter 4, I want us to take a look at an event that took place during the first century. Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. I want you to get your mind around this. Visualize what's taking place here. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, verse 9, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed. See, let's stop right there. You need to know a little bit of the background. What took place in chapter 3 was that there was a man who had been crippled for 40 years. He was crippled from birth. And God, through his amazing power, enables Peter and John to heal this man. And this man is walking around. In fact, if you will read it later, he's, he's holding on to Peter and John's robes. He, he's so excited. I've been set free. I've been healed. I mean, he, he's hanging out with these guys. He doesn't want to leave them. He's been cured. And so Peter's basically saying right here in, in verse 9, if you're calling us out because we did an act of kindness, some Cause, we, we met some cause or some social justice act. If you're calling us out for being kind to people, well, we're just going to tell you here's the reason. Here's the reason. And then he says this in verse 10. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is, Jesus, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Verse 13, when they, the religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered Peter and John to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these guys? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these guys to speak no longer to anyone in the name of Jesus. 
They can't talk anymore about Jesus. Then they called Peter and John in again, and so they order them, command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. How big is your Jesus? How big is your Jesus this morning? Is he so big that you would spend a night in jail for him? Is he so big that you would receive a beating for him multiple times? Is he so big to you that you could look death in the face and you would because of Jesus and who he is to you and all that he's done for you? I mean, how big is your Jesus this morning? I mean, when you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? If you've grown up in church, maybe, or gone to Sunday school, maybe your Jesus is flannel graph Jesus. Maybe that's your Jesus this morning. Or cartoon Jesus. Or depending upon your age, maybe your Jesus is South Park Jesus. Or maybe if you're a Mel Gibson fan, Passion of the Christ fan, you're a Jim Caviezel Jesus who's now in person of interest, so you're a person of interest, Jesus. That's your Jesus to you or to me. Or maybe your view of Jesus is necklace Jesus hanging on a crucifix around your neck. Nothing wrong with that. But that's when you think of Jesus or when you visualize who Jesus is, that's who comes to mind. How big is your Jesus? How big is Jesus to you this morning? How big is he to me? Is he so big to you that you would make any move necessary so that people could hear about him? Is he so big to you that it doesn't matter what people might say or think about you, you, you're going to tell him anyway all that Jesus has done for you? Is he that big to you? Is he big enough to you that you know he can give you the big courage to walk across that cubicle and and pray with that coworker who you know is going through a tough time simply because you want them to see Jesus in you. Is he big enough to you that you'll step out and walk across the hall in the apartment complex you live in and invite your neighbors over for dinner some night just so you can show Jesus to them? Is he big enough to you to do that? Is he big enough to you that you're willing to move to a different state, maybe move to a different country, and proclaim him to a people that have never heard of him before? Is he big enough to you to do that? I mean, maybe is he big enough for you to offer forgiveness to that person in your past that's hurt you because they don't know who Jesus is, and you know that by doing that, they're going to see something in you that's so radical, so different, the fact that you're asking for forgiveness from them or giving forgiveness to them, that they're going to be like, why are you doing that? And you're going to say, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus and the forgiveness I've received from him. Is Jesus big enough to you that you're willing to do that? To make that move? I mean, if we answer, yes, Jesus is big enough, then what are we waiting for? Then what are we waiting for? What am I waiting for? 
I mean, when I look at the first century church, they endured beatings. If you want to get an idea of what they endured, we won't look at it now, but go check out Paul's list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. What these first century church Christians endured, these made disciples endured because of Jesus, because they loved Jesus, because of what Jesus had done for them. I mean, they endured hunger, thirst, exile, death, beatings multiple times, shipwrecks, simply to make Christ known. And I can't even get enough courage to talk about Jesus in a restaurant with my friend. That's a problem to me. That's a problem. John MacArthur said it's interesting to him that the first century church had to be commanded to stop talking about Jesus, and the 21st century church has to be commanded to start talking about Jesus. What was it about the first century church? What was it about Peter and John who just spent a night in jail and they're getting questioned? They're like, You want to know? It's all about Jesus. What was it about them that enabled them to step out and move out and make any move for the cause of Christ? Because I want that kind of courage. I need that kind of courage. What was it? What did they have that you and I need? I mean, what, what enabled them to have big courage to move out and make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the world, what was it in the face of danger, death, beatings, stonings, whatever? What was it? Where did they get that big courage? Because you and I need it. Because we've been given the same mission that the first century church has. And as a refresher, let me remind us of the mission that we have as church. Our mission is this, as made disciples, knowing Christ, we are moving out, living Christ, making Christ known. That's our mission. If you're here this morning and you've been transformed because of Jesus Christ, you're a made disciple of his, and now you're knowing him, and now you're moving out, whether that's across the hall, across the workplace, to a new state, different country, whatever it is, we're moving out, living Christ, making Christ known, making new disciples. Making new disciples, and as those new disciples are made, they're gathering together and they're forming new multiplying church communities. We call them living communities. So the mission is this, is made disciples. We're moving out making new disciples. And that's what we see in the first century church. And they did it with big courage. So where did their big courage come from? Because what I see they have, we need. And I believe we see their big courage, the source of their big courage, right here in Acts chapter 4. I believe we see their source of big courage for moving on mission right here in Acts 4. Let's take a look at it. Verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees come up to Peter and John while they're speaking to the people. Here's the situation. Jesus has died. He's been buried and he's come back to life. Easter has come and gone. Now what? Easter's come and gone. While Jesus was alive, this Second time on earth, he gives his disciples a mission. And he says, here's your mission. You need to go be my witnesses to the world. You need to go tell the world the truth about who I am, Acts 1.8. And I'm going to send you the power source, if you will, that's going to empower you to do that. And his name is Holy Spirit. So I'm going to fill you with the Spirit. And so you're going to have the Holy Spirit inside you to move out on this mission. And so that's where we find him. He gives him this mission. Jesus ascends to heaven and then he leaves his first disciples on earth 
to accomplish this mission that he gives them. And see, in chapter 3, Peter and John had just healed this guy, and the people are like, it draws a crowd, it probably would. And the crowd's like, how'd you do this? And they're like, we did it through Jesus. We don't take any credit. Jesus did all this. Jesus did this. Well, what they don't like about Peter and John, and you see it in verse 2, is that they were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The situation is this. The group that's upset with Jesus is a group that didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in that. And so Jesus didn't fit within their religious box. They didn't like it. So people are leaving their religion and they're going to Jesus. They're leaving their religion and they're going to Jesus and they're trying to understand this. They're greatly disturbed. And the word greatly disturbed means they're grieved. I mean, they are aching inside these Sadducees. They don't like it. So what do they do? They throw Peter and John in jail. I don't, we don't know what to do. Let's just throw them in prison. Okay, so they throw them in prison. And look what happens next in verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Listen to me. You can imprison the messengers of Jesus, but you can never imprison the message of Jesus. You can imprison the messengers of Jesus, but you can never imprison the message of Jesus. Because here they throw these guys in jail. What happens next? Explosion of the Jesus movement. Just takes off. And see, that's what's happening. They're like, we killed Jesus. And man, that didn't do any good because like, it's going crazy. And so they're throwing these guys in jail. And the Jesus movement continues. It spreads. And see, that's what religion try to, tries to do. Religion is this box. It's nice and symmetrical. You can carry it with you when it's convenient, and you can leave it behind you when it's inconvenient. All right? But the one thing about this religious box is inside it, it's empty. It's empty inside. And so Jesus comes along. There's a religious box Stomps on the box. There is no box with Jesus. And these people are going, whoa, this religious box is empty, but Jesus is full? He's come to give us life to the full? I'm getting rid of that box, and I'm going to Jesus. And that's what's happening right here. That's the situation we find these guys in. And then they come, verses 5 through 7, and they start. So Peter and John are in prison. They're in jail. And these religious leaders, they come to them. They start questioning Peter and John. And then they tell them this by what power, what name did you do this? Open question. And we get that sometimes, right? So, man, explain your journey from, for us. You know, personally, we lived in Ireland and came back from Ireland doing mission work, and we came back to no job, no house, nothing, that kind of thing, and God amazingly took care of us and provided for us, and, and so people have asked us, how did you guys do that? How did you survive and get through that? And real simple answer like these guys, Jesus took care of us. Sometimes you're going to get an opportunity. People are going to ask you a question, and they're going to ask you this question, open door immediately for you to move through that door and live on mission and make Christ known. And that's what's happening, seizing the opportunity. And here we see Peter's incredible big courage. He says this, listen, if you're confronting us about helping somebody, then we're going to tell you the answer. And the answer is, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now notice, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's the same Holy Spirit that you and I have today. The same Holy Spirit we're reading about right now that, took, that was filling them is the Holy Spirit that's filling you and me has made disciples of Jesus. So Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now think about this. Peter has just spent a night in prison. 
And if it were me, I'd be like, okay, how do I word this so I don't end up back in prison again? What can I maybe change? How can I change my phrasing, you know, and to kind of make it not sound so like uh, confrontational with these guys? Peter doesn't back down. He says, you killed Jesus. Okay, he doesn't water it down. He's like, you killed him. And see, what's interesting is the court that, is, that has Peter and John before them is the same court that killed Jesus. It's the same court that went to Pilate. And see, he's saying, you killed Jesus. And the Bible tells us that everyone has sinned and all of our sins put Jesus on the cross. So we can read our own names in there. And it says, you crucified him. You crucified him. He doesn't back down. He doesn't water down the truth. And then he says, but whom God raised from the dead. Again, these are fighting words because they don't believe in resurrection from the dead. Peter's not trying to water it down. He's saying, listen, this Jesus, your sin put him on the cross, but God, he resurrected him. And I know you don't believe that, but that happened. doesn't matter what you may think or want to believe. This is truth. Because we saw him. We heard him. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't care what they're thinking or how this might be presented. He just tells them about Jesus. And he says, this man that was healed, he stands before you healed. How? By the name of Jesus. Peter takes zero credit and he puts it all on Jesus Christ. He gives all the glory for what's happening to Jesus Christ. And may we be the same. And then he quotes from their scriptures, from the scriptures, Psalm 118. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone this is interesting because he's saying that stone is Jesus and you're the ones who rejected him. In essence, Peter's going, you're the very fulfillment. Your rejection of Jesus is the fulfillment of your own scriptures. I mean, you talk about big courage. This is huge courage. Where does he get this from? I want it. I need that kind of courage. And then if they didn't get it yet, look at verse 12. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter's on a roll. He's not backing down. He's saying, let me tell you, if you haven't gotten it yet, that this is all about Jesus, salvation, becoming right with God, having peace with God, having your sins forgiven is all and only through Jesus Christ and him alone. There is no other name by which you can have peace with God. You're not going to find it in your own name. You're not going to find it in someone else's name. You're not going to find it in some religious leader's name. You're going to find it in one person's name, and his name is Jesus. And that's what Peter's saying. You see, Jesus is not an option for life. He's not an option. He's the way. He's not an option for life. Jesus becomes your life. Paul said this in Colossians chapter 3. He said, Christ who is our life. So it's not like you take Jesus and if Jesus doesn't work out, I'll just kind of leave him to the side. No, why would they stand up for Jesus like this? Be willing to be thrown in the slammer and be beaten because they know Jesus is it. Jesus is the way. There is no other option. Jesus is it. He's the only way and salvation is found in no one else. And Peter communicates that to these guys. He doesn't back down. He's strong. And remember who he's saying this to, the same court that put Jesus on the cross. There's the threat of of death here for Peter to say these things. You talk about big courage. And then in verse 13, it says, when they saw the courage, and the word courage there means this bold, free, without reservation, fearless confidence. Oh, how I want that. Oh, how I need that. 
to be bold, to be fearless, to, without reservation, and just tell people what Jesus has done in my life and what he can do for them. I long for that. I need that courage. We, the church in the 21st century, need that courage. And they saw it. The religious leaders see it. They say, we saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Now keep in mind who Peter and John are. Just days before this, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus to a little village girl. She said, haven't you been with Jesus? No. Another person, have you been with Jesus? No, I don't even know him. Have you been with Jesus, Peter? No, stop asking me. I don't know who you're talking about. And Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that all the disciples, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, all of, the, all of them, which would have included John, deserted Jesus. So here we got Peter, who just days before this event is running away from Jesus, claims that he doesn't even know Jesus. Peter's, or John has deserted him from the garden. And here they're standing up. They've got huge courage. Where did they get it from? And you know, when I read that, I go, thank you, God, for your grace. Because maybe you and I have failed in the past of communicating Christ with people, but God's grace is sufficient and keeps overflowing in us to empower us that he'll still use us for the mission, even though maybe we didn't speak up before. And that's grace. That's God's grace in our lives. And these guys have amazingly big courage, huge courage. And I love this because these guys are like, these guys are unschooled, ordinary men. You know what that means literally? Here's what it means. It means illiterate idiots. That's what it means. From the religious leader's perspective, Peter and John were illiterate idiots. Illiterate in the sense of they'd never been to Jewish school. They were fishermen. Never been officially, publicly educated in the Jewish system. They didn't have a public office. They were common folk. And to the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they, they were looked at upon looked upon as illiterate. And the word ordinary, we get our word idiot from it. They were illiterate idiots. These guys didn't have, listen, Peter and John didn't have Bible degrees. They didn't have seminary degrees. The only degree they had was the degree in being with Jesus. Because that's what they said. They had a degree in being with Jesus. So if you want a degree, here's the degree you need to get. The degree of being with Jesus degree. Because that's what you need. That's what I need. Nothing wrong with having a Bible degree or seminary degree. But that doesn't mean you can't move out on mission for Jesus if you don't have those. All you need is to be with Jesus. It says they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Don't ester, underestimate an illiterate idiot who's been with Jesus. Because it was a bunch of illiterate idiots who'd been with Jesus that turned the world upside down for Jesus. So if you would qualify in the illiterate idiot category, look out. Get with Jesus and you can change the world. You can change the world. And that's what we see happen. So they're like, man, these guys have amazing courage. Where do they get this from? They've been with Jesus. You know, they're looking at, the, then they start threatening Peter and John, right? They say, that, what are we going to do? I mean, the guy they healed, he's right here. We can't deny it. And see, I think in their minds, they're going, okay, we killed Jesus, and look what happened to the Jesus movement. It, like, spread like crazy, and we kill these guys. Same thing's going to happen, maybe even worse. So we don't want to kill them, because that might make the movement spread even more. So let's just kind of threaten them, and that's what they do. They just make threats. Verse 17, they get to say, we got to stop this thing from spreading. 
And then they call Peter and John in again in verse 18, and they command them, they order them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And here's the big source for courage. Here it is. This is where I believe we see the first century church getting their big courage for moving out on mission, making Christ known. It's right here. Verse 19, Peter and John reply, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Here it is, verse 20. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't help but tell you about what we have seen and heard. I mean, Peter and John saw something so stunning, so amazing, so beautiful, so radical, so life-transforming that they had to tell people. They had to tell people about who they'd seen and what they'd seen about this Jesus. So how big is your Jesus? How big is my Jesus? It's not that we make Jesus big. He's already huge. He's already big. He's king. It's our view of Jesus. And see, they had seen and heard Jesus, and they couldn't stop talking about him. It's kind of like you see some of the the young um, families, maybe it's their first child, and with the ability of social media today, if you just travel through Facebook a little bit on the timeline, that kind of thing, on the walls, if it's the first child, usually there's all kinds of posts, right, of the first child or the first grandchild. I mean, just all kinds, right? I mean, it's just everything they do. You know, here's, here's her sitting for five minutes. Five minutes later, here she's still sitting. Same, same spot. She hasn't moved. It's awesome. 20 minutes later, you're not going to believe it. She's still sitting there. She's gorgeous. She's beautiful. You know, or, you know, the first hiccup, the first word. When you have multiple children, it changes a little bit. Like, we have four. You know, Grant, when Grant came along, you know, we had all kinds of scrapbooks. We probably have four or five of Grant, you know, maybe a 100 a grant. Luke comes along, we're down to maybe 75. You know, then Aislinn, maybe 25. Kate, we can't find him. You know, I, I mean, it's just that kind of the way it rolls. But here, what's going on is they'd seen something so amazing, so stunning, so incredible, we can't help but tell you about what we've seen and heard. We can't help it. Well, what had they seen and heard? What, what was the source of their big courage? You see, Peter and John had seen Jesus before his death, and that led them to be cowardly. It wasn't until they saw the resurrected, exalted Christ that we see them as courageous. That we see them as courageous. You see, in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, it says that the disciples, they spent time with Jesus. He ate with them. He talked with them. He gave them a mission. And then they saw this risen, exalted Jesus ascending up into heaven. And what does the angel say? Just as you see him ascending, he will come down. Can you imagine that scene? I can't picture that. That's so hard for me to imagine. But just as Jesus is going to come down, that's how he went up. And that's how these early disciples saw him. They saw him as the risen, resurrected, exalted ruler of all, the king of all kings, angels swirling everywhere, the glory all over the place. People are singing. I mean, it's a crazy, amazing scene. Would you not, if you saw that, want to tell people? I mean, they're saying, we can't help but tell you what we've seen and heard. It wasn't until they saw the risen, exalted Jesus Seated, seated on his throne that they had their big courage for moving out on mission. If you look at Acts chapter 5, just go over there quickly to verse 29 and following. 
Again, Peter and John are told, hey, you've got to stop talking about Jesus. And they're like, listen, we've got to obey God rather than men. They'd say, Jesus, you know, you killed him. God raised him from the dead. And then verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins. And they say, we are witnesses of these things. So they saw the exalted risen Christ. And it wasn't until they saw the risen exalted Christ that they had the big courage to move out on mission for Christ. That's what they saw. And if you were to go to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, the very first verse, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, there's a lot of talk about what revelation means and all that, and some of it's true, some of it, some of it isn't. But don't miss the forest through the trees when it comes to the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation is all about unveiling Jesus to people. And it's all about unveiling Jesus as king. And Revelation was written during a period of time when the church was enduring incredible persecution presently, and there was coming persecution. And what's the scene that John is given to encourage the church? It's the scene of Jesus as king, seated on the throne. And he's saying, would you have a vision of Jesus? And you're seeing Jesus as king, seated on the throne, surrounded by myriads of angels. When you're looking at that Jesus, that's where your big courage comes from. That's your big courage, the source of big courage. For moving on mission is the Christ who is risen. That's where they got it from. Mark Driscoll, pastor out in Washington, says the the church loses its courage because its Jesus isn't big enough. And I want to say the church gets courage because Jesus is big enough. He's big enough. It's not Jesus' problem that you and I aren't moving out on mission like we should and telling people about who he is. It's because I believe we have a faulty view of Jesus. We're not looking at the risen King Jesus, the same Jesus that moved and mobilized them and empowered them. Can you say like these guys, i got to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. It's been amazing. It's amazing what Jesus has done for me. And so like Peter and John looking to the exalted risen Christ, make your move. If you could make any move this week to tell that family member, coworker, friend, neighbor about Jesus, what move would you make? What would it be? Make your move. Make your move. Your, your source of courage is right here. His name is Jesus. The risen, exalted King Jesus. That's your source of courage. And maybe you're here and you're going, okay, you're not a disciple of Jesus. And you're going, why all the fuss about Jesus? How the fuss about Jesus? Because verse 12 says, salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus. If you're trying to get right with God or have peace with God through any other means other than, G- other than Jesus, it will be a failure. It will be empty. But when you walk through Jesus who died on the cross, who took your sins upon the cross for you and then came back to life three days later, giving you the promise of new life, when you look to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he comes inside you and he sets you free from that sin and then you are mobilized and empowered for mission. That's why all the fuss about Jesus. So if you're here without Jesus, Charles Spurgeon said this, it's not what you're doing that gets you to heaven, it's where you're looking. It's not what you're doing that gets you to heaven. It's where you're looking. So look to Jesus. Turn to him. Turn from your religious actions. Turn from your sins and turn to, Je- turn to Jesus. Believe his message and give your life to him. He came to us. He came to you. And it's just as simple as saying, Jesus, take my life. I believe you died for me. Take me. Forgive me. 
And he promises he will and he'll come in and set you free. And if you're here a made disciple of Jesus, how big is your Jesus this morning? How big is he? You say, well, I can't physically see Jesus. I know we can't physically see him, not yet, but there will be a day when we will as the church. But you can see and hear the exalted risen Jesus right here. You want a great picture of Jesus? Read the book of Revelation. And when you read it, just look for Jesus. Just look at Jesus all through Revelation. You're like, wow, that's the Jesus that gives me courage to move out on mission, whether it be to Tennessee or across the street or across the hall. That's our source of big courage. So when times get tough, when you're starting to have fears of what will people say or think or how will God provide, we're having times of uncertainty, and you say, i still got to make disciples, i still got to move on this mission, you look to Jesus. And you look to the risen, exalted Jesus because he is your source for a big courage. And ask God to give you big courage. Chapter 4, verse 29, that's what the early disciples did. They just made an incredible move of big courage, and they said, enable your servants, Lord God, with great boldness. If you ask God for boldness, to give you boldness to make a move for him, he's going to answer that prayer. Because that's exactly what he wants. You to make a move for him, to proclaim Christ. And then keep moving. Let me ask you again, if you could make any move this week, any move at all, any move that would tell someone and show someone Jesus, what move would, it, what move would you make this week? Think of it right now. Get in your mind. Make your move. Make it. We have a big enough courage. It's not you. It's not me. His name is Jesus. Big courage for moving on mission comes from looking at Christ, the one who is risen. Big courage for moving on mission comes from looking to Christ, the one who is risen. Big courage, saying this for a reason over and over, big courage for moving on mission comes from looking to Christ, the one who is risen. Big courage for moving on mission comes from looking to Christ, the one who is risen. Jesus said this in Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18. He said this, Do not be, this is the risen, exalted Christ in the throne room of heaven. And he says this, do not be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead, but I am alive forever. Church, let's move. Let's move. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for teaching us from your word this morning. I thank you that Jesus is alive right now, that he is alive, and that through him we have our big courage to move out on mission and proclaim him to the world. And may we, like Peter and John, Father, be able to say we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. God, we confess our sin to you this morning, our sin of having a low view of Jesus. And I pray this morning that we would move out of this place into this next week, moving on mission, looking always at the exalted risen Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.